Okay, welcome back to Firewall. As usual, I'm your host, Bradley Tusk. My guest today is Andrew Meyer. Andrew wrote a really interesting book called Morgenthau, Power, Privilege, and the Rise of an American Dynasty. Andrew, thanks for joining us. Great to be here. Thank you. Yeah, so, you know, this is like a behemoth of a book, and it covers four generations of this family, and they clearly were quite a dynasty. So first thing, what made you decide that you wanted to do this? Good question. Thanks, Brad. Um, I was, uh, for about six years, the Time Moscow correspondent, and when I came back to New York, uh, I started freelancing and delving into New York politics, mm -hmm. looking at New York culture, and uh, was able to write uh, a few stories for the Times Sunday Magazine. And I had written one biography um, previously after writing a big book on Russia, a massive uh, first book on Russia. And looking around, uh, I saw... Um, there was a guy named Mike Bloomberg. Yeah, I'm familiar with him. <laughs> and yeah. I thought, well, you know, I could take a look at Mike Bloomberg. Turns out a, a really good colleague and a great friend, Eleanor Randolph, did that book. Yep. Maybe we can talk a little bit about sure. um, her work there. And I also looked at a guy named Steve Jobs, uh, who I had known a little bit growing up. I grew up in, uh, in Stanford, California. Steve Jobs was a character wa walking around downtown Palo Alto, often in bare feet. <laughs> and I thought, well, God, he might be interesting. Um, and then a, my former boss, actually at the right. time, Walter Isaacson yeah. step, stepped in there. Also a good book. Yeah. So that left Robert Morgenthau. And I actually went to um, the DA. He was 89 years old. I went mm -hmm. downtown um, near where we're sitting right now. And um, I went under the pretext, essentially. You know, the FBI agents call it pretexting. And the pretext was a profile for the Times Magazine or the New Yorker, which I was going to pitch on a freelance basis. And the DA was 89. Mm -hmm. He was running again for a ninth term. Um, as one does. He had a great slogan, as you can appreciate, 90 and 09. I thought it was a good slogan. <laughs> That's clever. Um, but he had absolutely no interest in another magazine profile. Uh, he gave me 45 minutes, and that was going to be it. Uh, long story short, I, I mentioned um, that I had read... Uh, we call it a diary, but it's actually not a diary. It was sort of a half fable, half uh, self-narrated, maybe you'd call it a blog now today, that his um, great-grandfather, Lazarus Morgenthau, yep. the first Morgenthau who came to New York, had written um, at the ripe age of 27 in 1842. Uh, that caught the DA's ear, and we spoke for another couple of hours, and then we went for a long lunch. Uh, he left a lot of people back at the office, assistant prosecutors waiting, and at the end of that day, essentially, um, a different idea formed in my mind to do the long 150-year, four-generation behemoth, as you said. Uh, and 10 years later, uh, it's done. Yeah, well, congratulations on it. So um, you call them a dynasty. And I'm curious, what's your definition of a dynasty, right? Because it's not just a rich family over multiple generations. It's a great question. You know, when I've been speaking on the book, I've, I've asked the audience, you know, can you name another American family that over successive generations has had high positions of public um, service or public power? And, you know, people sometimes throw back the bushes. Yep. Well, we don't have a third generation yet. Isn't it like... The, isn't he like the railroad commissioner in Texas or something like yeah, that? Yeah, it's a good... I mean, I haven't... So, something I, like that. I haven't done my deep wiki yeah, research it's, yet. Yeah, it's not that much. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, and then, of course, John... You know, of course, there's the Adamses. Uh, yeah. Uh, it's hard to beat two presidents. But, in, but in, in essence, there really isn't one. And amazingly, in New York City, there isn't one. 
Yeah. Um, you know, the Rockefellers hasn't happened yet. Um, uh, I, and I know our politics these days are not trending towards a Rockefeller getting elected governor. Again. Exactly. And uh, Ed Koch, uh, unfortunately for some people in uh, the population, did not have uh, nope. offspring. Yeah. Uh, so- Mike's kids aren't running for anything. <laughs> Yeah, well, that's a good question. I don't, I throw one yeah, back at you. Yeah. I don't think I had lunch with Emma not that long. If if one of them were, it would be Emma, and she was asking me if I want to run for mayor. So yeah, she's go. definitely not running. All right, well, we're going to get to that. Yeah. Um, so it, it, that that's the question, and you know, Morgenthau, the DA, Robert Morgenthau, he bristled at a few things. Rudy Giuliani, <laughs> he yeah, set sure. him off. Um, Mike Bloomberg could set him off. Because um, of the Deutsche Bank, because of fire? a lot, because of a lot of things. Although okay. at the end they did have uh, a deep uh, and abiding rapprochement, and uh, Bloomberg, um, you may have well have been there, um, gave him a farewell party that he deeply appreciated. Yeah, no, Mike, Mike Manson. really respected Bob. I know that for a fact. Yeah, yeah. It was. Hard. I mean, so to answer your question, um, the dynasty is over really three generations. The first generation, Lazarus Morgenthau, the 19th century sort of patriarch. Um, he was a larger-than-life character. He probably deserves uh, a Hollywood tale of his own. Um, but he was, uh, at end, a complete failure. Uh, it, it was boom and then bust for Right, Lazarus so he, he made his money by creating a new type of cigar box, right? He was a cigar baron back in Germany, in okay. Bavaria. Um, he had left his family, left Orthodox Judaism, had run away from everything, uh, became a bridge builder, uh, not literally, but uh, to the Catholic Church, to the Protestant Church. Uh, and then he went bust in the cigar business, thanks to Abe Lincoln's tariffs during the Civil War. And he had a, a brother, as one would uh, always have a brother, uh, in California and San Francisco, yep. who told him about uh, the 49ers. Not the football team. <laughs> and uh, Lazarus said, hmm, there are people out there with a lot of money who need, who need cigars, and yep. we can do it cheaper, which didn't seem to make economic sense, but it did, and that's how he made his fortune. But how did he, he know what kind of a manufacturing process in the U.S. would be like to know he could do it cheaper? It's a good question. Uh, and, and also the whole, you know, this is a little bit pre-internet, the whole notion that he had uh, an inkling that he had to hurry uh, before Lincoln uh, gets elected and would slap these Civil War tariffs. Uh, he did. It was all by letters. Some of the letters still exist. The Morgenthau's were, I mean, one of the reasons why the book took so damn long is the Morgenthau's were not just one, but successive generations of uh, arguably the greatest pack rats in New York history. Right. So, so there good were and mil- bad. A lot, lot for you to do, but a lot to work from. And millions yeah. and millions of pages of, of documents, wow. including those letters in a German Gothic script that, you know, you have to hire someone, uh, a, a real German historian, to, to decode. And that history was in that. Uh, so Lazarus makes a lot of money, yep. lose, loses it all, comes to New York, yep. and then fakes it. And he never makes it. He has... Patent after patent, he starts uh, an orphan dowry system. We could go on and on and on uh, until finally the police come. And his son, Henry Morgenthau, um, says, you know, Papa, you better watch out. The cops are going to come. And actually, that is a great New York story, of which I knew nothing when I started the whole epic. So Henry, the son, I think was the first major success of the family what about him after a dad who kind of couldn't really make it? Um, what about Henry was so different that allowed him to be successful? Well, uh, before me came a guy named Jimmy Breslin. And Jimmy, yeah. I was able to get to know one of the great uh, fun parts of this book was the research and meeting um, 
really the last great generation of New York uh, street crime court reporters. Right. And Breslin was one of them. Uh, was Newfield one of them? Uh, unfortunately, he had passed before. Yeah, but yeah, I, I liked went, him. Yeah. But I did go through his books, and, yeah. and, and Morgenthau was not only good friends with him, but at one point neighbors um, uh, in downtown Manhattan. They got along. Um, and Maggie Haberman actually tells a story. Well, it's off the record. I don't know if I can repeat it. But basically, I <laughs> it's think just she, our listeners. I think she's, she's written about it. Uh, I'm not going to out her now, but she, she, it's a story about Morgenthau's um, uh, incredible way of muscling the press. And, and in particular, his friend, Jack Newfield. Uh, and she was uh, personally a part of that. I'll leave it at that. Okay. Um, and we can come back to that because that's really what the book is about, is about power in New York City over 150 years, uh, writ large, and really across the country, um, and, and how they attained it, how they kept it, how they used it. Uh, to what end did they use it, uh, and what the legacy is. And that kind of answers your question on what a dynasty is. It's more than a family. Uh, it's a sense that uh, a theme runs through generation after generation, knowingly or unknowingly, and it does continue today. And, and, and in their family, was it sort of understood that, like, serving was kind of your responsibility and duty, or did it just kind of keep happening? Because, I mean, they all had big government roles in different ways. Yeah. Um, certainly, Henry Sr., um, he was canvassing these very streets where we sit in lower Manhattan as a young man in 1872 and through the 80s and the 90s. Um, he has to leave um, City College. He then goes to Columbia Law School, uh, founds a small firm down near um, on Lower Broadway across from City Hall. Mm-hmm. Uh, with two friends, and they do sort of -of run-of-the-mill legal work until he discovers, hmm, there's a guy named John Jacob Astor and the Astor family who control a lot of real estate. Uh, New York, of course, was lower Manhattan. Central Park uh, existed, but beyond Central Park and throughout Brooklyn and above north was farms. These were the old Dutch dairy farms or even just uh, vacant land. Henry Morgenthau realized... Which I'm only talking a little over 100 years ago. It's amazing. Yeah. It is amazing. Again, I knew next to none of this history, and I would, you know, as, uh, as, as a born, you know, first and foremost a reporter uh, and a historian second, I would set out to try to find the biographers, the historians who really knew this terrain, literally, in New York real estate, the birth of New York real estate. Uh, 1898 is conglomeration, and that's the birth of New York City. Brooklyn, yep. Brooklyn yep. before that was its own city. It may well become one I think one it was the again. third biggest city. Well, Staten Island <laughs> keeps trying to become its own city. Right. Yeah, I, I think Brooklyn I, was either the second or the third. Yeah. Uh, anyhow, it, it, it was huge. And yeah. uh, then you have, you know, uh, after the Brooklyn Bridge, um, Henry Morgenthau is coming of age as the city is coming of age. Uh, he's married just uh, just shortly after the Brooklyn Bridge opens, um, and he is aware of a few things. Number one, the influx of immigrant labor, and he writes about it again and again and again. There's going to be all this cheap labor. They're going to need places to live. And up until then, real estate was essentially a ladies' trade. Uh, if you look at the early deeds, early being 1880s, 1890s, Wall Street was the domain of men, <laughs> and uh, real estate in, in New York City was either ignored or dismissed 
as the ladies trade. It's so funny because now it's like in, in many ways, at least in the political world, real estate feels much more important than Wall Street. Yeah, I know. There's no doubt about it. Yeah. And uh, and certainly by the time that uh, Bob Morgenthau becomes DA and even U.S. attorney, he's well aware of that change. But in his mind, to get to your question about, you know, what what remains, what runs throughout, what are the crosswinds throughout these generations, real estate and land as power mm-hmm. and as fungible power is absolutely germane to the Morgenthau family. Um, so in long story short, uh, Henry Morgenthau sees labor coming in, the flood of immigrant labor. He sees the demand for housing. And he also is acutely aware, whether it's from his father or not, with the feats, the pioneering feats of engineering. He sees steel, he sees, uh, he doesn't foresee, but he's aware and he's tracking the birth of the vertical city, the elevators, the steel beams, and the combination of the two. It's unbelievable how fast New York City grew, both vertically and north. Along comes the subway. He, this is back to Breslin. Breslin has a scene in his otherwise fantastic uh, biography of Damon Runyon. Um, which Jimmy, of course, pointed me to, uh, where Henry Morgenthau is with um, uh, Parsons, the chief engineer of the the subway and many other things in the city. Parsons also deserves his own biography. Uh, And it's up at Columbia and the archives and the Parsons diary. It's almost every day. It's thousands of pages that he is showing Henry Morgenthau the unpublished blueprint of the subway where it's going to go, something that the folks in, uh, who now control uh, the five boroughs real estate would, would, would have liked to have seen. Oh, yeah. And Henry is literally drooling over the map. Well, it may have happened. I couldn't find that scene. I let Jimmy know. And he goes, ah, come on. Don't, you know, I, can't, I don't think I can swear. But, uh, no, you, you certainly can. Okay. Yeah. Well, yeah. Brandon's like, you know, shut the fuck up. You know, of course it happened. It's in the book. Right. Uh, he <laughs> never hung up. Therefore, uh, it's real. Yeah. Yeah. He never hung up. Um, but they, but to finish that, Breslin and Morgenthau, the DA, had uh, an ungentlemanly agreement that Breslin would write the DA's biography. It never happened because of that scene in the Runyon book. Wow. Yeah. Because Morgenthau was worried that his family would come off as corrupt. Yeah, and he just saw he just saw um, I think Breslin running fast and loose with the facts, or at least at variance with the family lore. There were other reasons, I'm sure, of course, but uh, you know that was the thing about the DA. There were there were he had principles, he had integrity. No one ever doubted that. But boy, could he hold a grudge. Uh, in all the interviews I did, whether it was with Ray Kelly, the, the former police commissioner, or with hundreds of members of his own uh, staff, um, or his deepest critics, this would come up again and again. You know, He could build bridges, again, like his great-grandfather or his father, Henry. Uh, father Henry, his father, Henry Sr., uh, grandfather, sorry, uh, uh, both his father and his grandfather, famously built bridges, uh, even... Um, Henry Morgenthau Sr., who becomes the real estate uh, baron and then the ambassador to Turkey under Woodrow Wilson, is in, during the New Deal, at a rally at Madison Square Garden with Father Coughlin, you know, the uh, America First radio chieftain. And I couldn't believe it. But that was sort of typical that they would be able uh, to reach out to the furthest side and, and, and make an alliance for their own yeah, for goals. Yeah. And that certainly was true of the DA. Um, and so for Henry, he makes all this money in real estate, 
and then clearly he pivots to politics and becomes this Wilson supporter. How, how did that happen? He uh, was first and foremost a great talent scouter. Um, he believed in, a, in, in two things, essentially. Um, his own perfectibility, <laughs> and I mean that only kind of as a half a, uh, uh, a half a joke. He had an enormous ego. He had an enormous self of self-importance, uh, sense of self-importance. But um, he also believed, uh, he had read a lot of Emerson, um, you know, his father was running amok and the police were coming and, you know, the, uh, Lazarus at the end, um, the sheriff comes and requisitions that the, all the furniture in his house and it's this scandal that plays out in the paper. Um, Henry is the middle son of uh, uh, 14 surviving children. Um, decides that he's going to make it his own way. And it's a, literally a Horatio Alger story and uh, pulls himself up um, with very little support, reads Ben Franklin daily, chastises himself, you know, he, he keeps track of every girl that he dated and every girl that he didn't date. Uh, there's this uh, amazing propensity to try to um, perfect and track every movement, every penny that he spends and every penny that he saves. Uh, the diaries are, are, again, voluminous. And out of that grows a sense that I can be anyone I want, Mm -hmm. Again, as New York City is growing, and I can make a fortune, and he becomes, uh, a little bit later on, the leading anti-Zionist. As, as a German Jew, he becomes sort of the poster boy of American assimilationism, and uh, gives a speech, takes out ads, serializes it, becomes the public face of um, an American gospel for German Jews, for new immigrants, that my Zion is here, that my Zion is America. And it's really, he talks about the gospel of Americanism. Yeah. It sounds eerily, dangerously uh, familiar to a modern ear. Yes. But that's not what he meant. He meant that uh, we can lead the way democracy, so and that leads him directly. What year does he die? Uh, he dies in, um, in the late 40s. Okay, uh, so, so the, But he lives a very long life. Do yeah. you think, right, so I'm Jewish, uh, there's, no, there's no history, a country in the world that I'm aware of in history where Jews have been able to stay indefinitely in a way that's secure, and obviously Germany proved that very much so in the 1930s. When that happened, did that cause him to kind of rethink his view on it? And maybe, because like, I'm not confident that we're going to be safe in this country forever, right? Because history would say that's not the case. You know, we have Israel now, so it changes it. But did, did his view change at all when, when Hitler came to power? Yeah, it's a great question, Bradley. You know, uh, he happened to have a very close friend, which I, I, I uh, untangled and detailed in the book um, over many, many decades, um, Adolf Ochs. Mm -hmm. uh, he helped him actually buy the New York Times, 1895, I think it was. He helped him maintain the lease first on Park Row, and then he helped cobble together this strange trapezoid of a little piece of land that, thanks to Henry Morgenthau, became known as Times Square. It was Longacre Square before. And they had this very close alliance friendship. Uh, it was said between them, no money shall pass. Well, that was actually made great business sense for a real estate baron with political ambition. Right. Because when no money passes, you know this very well. Someone it means, else, yeah, you're owed in some other way. I owe you. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Uh, which is one of the DA's famous stories about George Steinbrenner. Um, but anyhow, uh, I owe you. Exactly. So that debt comes um, back and it's repaid again and again and again. Um, and one of the things that Ox did, and then Salzburgers later, is that... Uh, Every few years, certainly on his 60th, 70th, 80th, 90th, there was a huge 
interview with uh, a photograph or an illustration of Henry Morgenthau Sr. in the New York Times. And it was literally uh, pre-podcast, take a whole page of the New York Times and tell us what you think of the world. He was Ambassador Morgenthau by then. He had immense moral authority after calling um, out the Turks on the Armenian genocide. Um, he was the standard bearer for, Wils for Wilsonian democracy. He actually uh, recruited FDR to the Wilson side. Um, that talent spotting again, he had found FDR as early as 1912 and started grooming him for a relationship with his son that lasted the whole time FDR as president. And throughout all of that, every time he makes, uh, gives an interview, Morgenthau from the early 20s on talks about exactly what you said, Germany and the German problem. And he meant the German problem as uh, they are military, they are martial, they are uh, only going to be a problem for Europe. Yep. And he remembered it from his youth. Yep. Uh, and he went back. It's this really strange, uh, to me, strange, uh, having um, not delved too deeply in the whole world of German, uh, German Jews, especially uh, uh, of his generation. Henry Morgenthau Sr. had this really strange, uh, I guess you would call it, conflicted relationship with Germany. Um, and Roosevelt had it too. Yeah. Roosevelt, as a young man, had been in Germany. A lot of people didn't, don't know that today. Uh, and Roosevelt also, it's one of the main things that they, that they agreed on, Henry Jr., the son now, who becomes Secretary of Treasury, um, is the problem of Germany. And Roosevelt, literally almost to the last night, and they were together the last night Roosevelt was alive, is telling Henry, what about those uniforms? They can't wear uniforms, and they shouldn't be marching, and they shouldn't uh, uh, have drums. You know, all the things that our, our, our last president enjoyed about, you know, world leaders and, you know, the pomp and yeah. the, the whole militaristic uh, parades. Roosevelt worried about it. And, and Morgan thought, you know, to your good question, that comes from Henry Sr., the sense that Germany is going to be a problem. As much as they, there was much of Germany, German culture, German literature, which was absolutely, you know, at the heart of this family. Um, and, you know, it's interesting. Uh, I was talking to someone who's a German politician. And he said, you know, are you talking about how Germany does not claim the, the Morgenthaus? Which is a really interesting subject, which, you know, 10 years working on this book, that question had never hadn't, hadn't come no, up. Yeah. No, right. but it will in future, for future generations, you know, the whole sense of what, you know, the way the Irish, and he said this, the way the Irish claim uh, JFK. Right. The way the Irish claimed. So uh, why don't the Germans claim the Morgan Pass? Well, I think it's a question for the Germans and for German uh, historians. Uh, certainly the synagogue, which was a one-room, uh, decrepit uh, ruin uh, in southern Germany, has been rebuilt. And if you go on the web, you'll see uh, that that area of southern Germany, as well as Mannheim, where he lived on the Rhine River, Ludwigshofen, this is about uh, Lazarus, and, and many historians are literally excavating the, the German-Jewish past, restoring gravestones, and a lot of their great work uh, was a boon for my research. Um, but culturally, politically, um, uh, it hasn't yet happened, with the exception of uh, Anselm Kiefer, uh, the Morgenthau plan, um, did an installation. Uh, I think it was basically a barren wheat field, um, and he called it the Morgenthau plan. Because Morgenthau, of course, in, uh, to a German ear, rings most loudly when you talk about the Morgenthau plan. Right. So let's jump to Henry Jr. So, you know, while he sort of ended up in extremely high office, it sounded like when he was a kid, they kind of thought he was an income poop. 
Yeah, and um, again, uh, history has judged him very poorly. I hope that the book will do uh, do a bit of good work on that. Um, I certainly had heard a little bit, you know, the Morgenthau plan. I had heard that he had been Secretary of Treasury for a bit. I didn't know that he had been one of our longest-serving cabinet uh, members in U.S. history. Um, he never graduated college. He failed out twice. He never graduated. Uh, he never graduated prep school. Uh, he failed out uh, prep school. And in fact, it probably one of the first things I did, you know, so there were millions and millions of documents. Um, and it, there were something like 106 private archives, just private archives that held materials on the Morgenthau family when I first started out. I went to go see, you know, as a reporter, you always look for a shortcut. And uh, I went to go see uh, uh, eminent Yale historian John Morton Blum, who's probably taught more U.S. senators and, and, and a couple of presidents than anyone else. And uh, Blum had spent uh, 15 years or so with the Secretary of Treasury um, trying to freeze dry, trying to compress his um, uh, nearly 900 volumes of the Morgenthau Diaries um, from those 12 years in Washington down to three volumes. And Blum did it. And he gave me not only the shortcuts, the cue cards of what, you know, if I had to do this again, here are the 10 stories you got to hit. Yeah. Um, not where you can find the material, but here are the 10 stories. But he also did something which was incredible for me. He told me, here's what I couldn't use because the old man, he was working for Henry Morgenthau, uh, the Treasury Secretary, uh, out of office at the time in retirement. He wouldn't let me do it. Number one, uh, he said, his three sisters, I had spent um, a week traipsing around in weather like this in the rain in Manhattan to the three sisters, uh, and they spilled their guts and told all the stories about the family lore. Um, and when the Treasury Secretary out of office found out that he had talked to his sister, said, no, you got to rip that up, and he did. But he, of course, remembered these stories. Right. Great stories about Truman, too, and anti-Semitism um, that he was able to share with me that... Right. Uh, Henry Morgenthau Jr. didn't want because he was a very, um, he was a proud man. He was also kind of, uh, um, uh, he was very dour, very stolid. He, he, at least, at least his public persona, which was carefully, carefully curated, was one who was always glowering. Morgan, uh, Roosevelt called Henry Morgenthau Henry the Morgue. Right. Uh, so, so this guy is 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 kind of glowering and dour. He didn't graduate high school. He didn't graduate college. He becomes a Treasury Secretary. How does that happen? And spends more money, oversees the greatest uh, budget increases in U.S. history, uh, prepares not only France and the, and the U.K. Uh, for the rise of, of Hitlerism, warns Roosevelt in 1933, I find notes between the two of them, saying, what do you think about Hitler? Hitler, of course, comes to power the very same spring that FDR does. Yep. And, you know, the, the bizarre coincidences of, of history. And Roosevelt responds to Henry Jr. They were very good friends. He always sat at his left in cabinet. They had lunch together every Monday. All, you know, this was a cabinet of, of, uh, of all-stars, uh, New Deal ideologues. And they were jealous of Henry, who was all that you say. Right. A bit of an income poop. Uh, Truman famously calls him a blockhead. I should have fired him. I can't believe FDR didn't fire him. Um, he's a loyalist, uh, first and foremost. He's a supplicant, which, of course, FDR loved. They also had this bizarre kind of bromance where they would send um, each other jokes. And during cabinet, um, they would scribble on each other's pads, these silly jokes about, look at Frances Perkins, um, <laughs> the labor secretary, look at her hat. Uh, and it wasn't all misogynistic. And um, 
most importantly, Henry brought him back to 20, what are we, 2022? Yep. He, he delivered upstate New York for him in many ways, in which, you know, chapter... There's, how, the, how did he do it? Well, first and foremost, he was a farmer. And unlike Roosevelt, he was more than a gentleman farmer. Henry Morgenthau always put in his passport when he was asked uh, on the line, you know, what's your occupation? He always put farmer. And it was pride, but it was also true. He really, uh, the farm, which is in uh, Dutchess County, about an hour north of the city, mm-hmm. never made money. His father bought it for him, never made money until today, uh, when the DA's son, Joshua Morgenthau, uh, is, has turned it around. Um, COVID helped a lot with those property values, too. Yeah, and, and the apple. I think they've had a good uh, apple harvest. And, you know, yeah. the Brooklyn boom and, and the Brooklyn baby boom post 9 11 has helped because right. every, everybody goes to the Morgenthau farm that I know yep. of. Uh, from Brooklyn for for apples and cider and uh, and fresh donuts, um, and Morgenthau, uh, the, the Treasury Secretary, is a farmer and he understood the needs much like LBJ did. And I've talked to Robert Carroll about this: the electrification, uh, <clears throat> the electric electrification of the hill country in Texas, mm-hmm. and the electrification of rural New York. And Doug Brinkley writes about this too. Um, is really underappreciated. He brought hard roads. And when I first started reading these notes and these letters, I was like, what are they talking about, hard roads? Isn't every road hard? And uh, as I mentioned, I'd been across Russia, I'd been in Chechnya, I was like, wait a minute, was upstate New York just mud? Yeah. And for a farmer who needs to bring milk from the west down to the city, this is a big fucking deal. Right. So it was, it was rural schools, and of course it was taxes. The issues haven't really changed. Um, and so FDR doesn't become governor without Henry getting him upstate. You know, uh, a historian of FDR's early years, Jeffrey Ward, says exactly that, that he hadn't realized, first of all, what a great friend Henry Morgenthau was for FDR. Uh, Jeff Ward says this is the last great portrait of FDR's closest friend. Um, many will dispute that. Um, uh, but also the political legwork. They always went upstate together. Up until November 1944, Henry and FDR, part of that bromance, they're in the back of the open-air packer driving around uh, roads, many of them that were rutted, even in 1944, throughout Dutchess County and beyond. So cut to when Matthias Reyes, the lone rapist uh, in the Central Park Jogger mm-hmm. saga, comes forward. And Morgenthau hears about it in 2009. Five men are serving time or have served time yep. uh, for the horrific crime uh, that, that took place um, in Central Park. And uh, an assistant DA comes in and says, boss, so they always called him the boss, boss, uh, we have a problem. We hear um, from uh, through a corrections officer, through the inspector general, through a, a, comes down that upstate in Danamar prison, there's a young man who says, I did it and I did it alone. The first thing the DA says, I've been to Denimar. Because he had been a little, as a young man, in the car with FDR in a blizzard, uh, going on those campaign tours. And he said, years later, I said, what did you mean by that? Because he would always say, you know, there were these crazy phone calls. Middle of the night, early in the morning, I could be in line, you know, at the supermarket, or I could be on the playground with my kids, and the DA would call. And one minute it would be something about the Mossad, or the CIA, or Mike Bloomberg, or Ray Kelly. And I said, you know, about Dan Amar, what did you mean by that? He said, oh. Very simple. If you've been up there, you know. It's a castle. It's a hell of a place to be. And my first thought was, maybe he just wants a free ride down to New York, even in the back of a police This is about Matthias Reyes. Yeah. Even in the back of a police van, there's a feeling of, I'm back. I'm in the city. 
And he said a lot of inmates, that, that's what they're looking for. Of course, it, didn't, it turned out not to be the case. Right. So how does Henry become the leading advocate in, in, the, in the FDR's administration, the Roosevelt administration, and I think in the country, to sort of say, hey, we've got to save Jews that are being you know, killed by Hitler in, in Europe? Like his father, the ambassador um, to Constantinople, uh, <clears throat> and now, now Istanbul, um, in retrospect, these are great men of uh, moral integrity, moral authority, of conscience. At the time, they didn't believe it. First, his father in Turkey didn't believe that there could be um, bundles of uh, corpses of the Armenians who um, had been ethnic Armenians from the Turkish uh, uh, borders who were deported uh, to Aleppo, now Aleppo, Syria. Uh, Ambassador Morgenthau had a series of consuls and missionaries and private uh, corporate people who were across the Turkish Empire reporting, sending in um, what became known as the first reports of uh, ethnic genocide. Samantha Powers in her book, uh, A Problem from Hell, begins and ends with that. Um, but Henry Morgenthau, the ambassador to Turkey, didn't believe it because it was unfathomable. He couldn't believe it. Uh, and he famously decries the mass murder of uh, a nation, the term genocide. You know, as you know, didn't, uh, didn't, um, it wasn't formed until later, many decades later. Uh, the same thing with his son in the White House. Completely different relationship than his father had with Woodrow Wilson. Um, they were at best at arm's length, uh, Wilson and the ambassador. But the Treasury Secretary and Roosevelt, you know, as I said, were very, very close. And FDR's uh, friendship, FDR's uh, patronage, FDR's, I guess Henry would, would never say it this, but it was his love for, for Henry Jr. was everything to him. Their wives were extremely close. The Roosevelt and the Morgenthau's, uh, FDR called them the two Eleanors. Uh, Eleanor and Morgenthau spelled differently, but they were both an Eleanor, and they were very, very close. The women maybe, maybe were even closer than the men. Uh, it was a quadrilineal relationship. It was the only one of the kind uh, that the Roosevelt's had. The Roosevelt's had a rather problematic uh, uh, political marriage. Maybe it was the best political marriage. Uh, uh, it worked out in some ways. Yeah, it worked out some ways, absolutely. Uh, some people draw parallels to Hillary and Bill. I think, I think the Roosevelt's did it a lot better. Um, and, of course, Eleanor Roosevelt is this towering figure. Henry would go to Eleanor Ro Roosevelt, uh, to bounce ideas off him, off her, and also to say, do you think I'm going too far? He was always afraid of pushing Roosevelt too far. But he would nudge him based on, you know, leveraging, although he didn't see it that way, leveraging that close friendship. Um, and when he learns, um, when he learns at the height of the war, these reports coming across of what looks like mass murder uh, of the remaining Jews in Europe, he does go to his wife, his own wife, Eleanor Morgenthau. He does go to Eleanor Roosevelt. And ultimately, he's pushed to go to FDR. Uh, and in January 1944, that's exactly what he does. His top uh, lawyers, who were none of whom were Jewish, uh, all were, almost all were uh, New Deal ideologues, you know, the best and the brightest of the day. Henry had his own brains trust. That's what they call him, the brains trust, uh, in the Treasury. And he was a famous delegator. You know, when you drop out of uh, Cornell, when you drop out of uh, prep school, uh, and you uh, become, uh, as many at the time saw him, this genius bureaucrat, 
he probably had undiagnosed, one of his sons feels that he had undiagnosed dyslexia. And like many dyslexics, he couldn't see the page in front of him, but he could see the far horizon. And for the New Deal bureaucracy, that was a kind of genius. The treasurer at the time was enormous. He ran the Revenue Service, he ran his own police, he ran the Secret Service, he ran the Bureau of Narcotics, uh, all of which were growing enormously. And he oversaw uh, more than 30,000 employees around the world. The Treasury agents were posted you know, in consulates uh, and embassies around the world. And during the war, of course, this is enormously important. Um, He also saw uh, not just the trouble in Germany coming, he saw the trouble in Japan coming. And with his closest friend, FDR, he was able to make plans. Uh, He was the founder of what they call OFAC, which is extremely important today, Mm -hmm. with sanctions on Russia and other countries, Iran, uh, Sudan, uh, many of which came back uh, during the DA into prominence when the DA uh, was bringing his cases against European banks that were working against uh, in contravention of those sanctions. Morgenthau goes to FDR with a report that his, um, his top people entitle uh, Report to the President on the Acquiescence of This Government in the Murder of the Jews. For Henry Morgenthau Jr., that was too much. He crosses it out and it becomes just Report to the President. But nonetheless, he does bring it to him. FDR famously, like a recent president, doesn't read, uh, says, you know, summarize it to me. And, and to be fair, Roosevelt at this time uh, is not at all well. Yeah. Um, and within a few minutes, it's, it's under half an hour uh, in the Oval Office, he says, okay, Henry, this is what we're going to do. And he always had a plan. Um, we're going to create something called the War Refugee Board. Uh, and it's going to be not three people, but four, and he's going to add someone. He's always going to tweak it a little bit. You give him a proposal, he's always going to tweak it a little bit. And the War Refugee Board, uh, over the subsequent months, is thought uh, to have saved as many as 200,000 Jews. Far too little, far too late. But it is Henry Morgenthau Jr.'s, you know, highest point. Uh, Within a matter of years, FDR, his best friend, the sun god, you know, that his whole life revolved around, is dead. Mm -hmm. Uh, He's with him his last night in Warm Springs, Georgia. Um, His wife at the time, Eleanor Morgenthau, was young, uh, always in bad health, perennially, uh, chronically ill, uh, she soon dies, uh, his father dies, and of course, fam- famously, uh, Truman comes in, gives him a month or two, goes off to, Yol- uh, goes off to uh, Potsdam, leaves, him, leaves uh, Henry Morgenthau uh, behind, and essentially fires him uh, in the summer of 1945. Henry is gone. He's in the wilderness. And when he, years later, when he meets uh, his oldest son's, uh, fiance, he says, you should have known me back then. You should have known me when I was somebody. And he's in the wilderness. So he has a little bit of uh, a little bit of a recovery. He remarries, goes off to the south of France, builds a villa called uh, ostentatiously Mor- Morning Dew, like Morgenthau, uh, the English version of it, um, in Cap Antibes. I mean, he didn't have the, the worst, uh, worst time of it, but he's out of politics. So, so Bob Morgenthau growing up then, is his sense is that he wants to emulate his father or he wants to avenge kind of his father's kind of banishment? Or like, how does that impact him psychologically? Super, super question. And for a long time, I thought it was the latter because that's Roy Cohn. Roy Cohn yeah. uh, again and again and again said, oh, he, the, you know, the kid, 
He, Morgenthau was U.S. attorney, the chief federal prosecutor um, in the Southern District. Uh, many Americans now know what the Southern District is, uh, again, thanks to uh, former President Trump. Um, and uh, when Morgenthau is named by his childhood acquaintance slash buddy, uh, Jack Kennedy, to be the U.S. attorney in the Southern District, uh, one of the things he does uh, is goes after Roy Cohn. He brings not one, two, three, there were four trials in all, three indictments, each time Roy Cohn walks. And each time he says, this is a vendetta. He's out to, uh, he's out to get me. It's an incredibly entangled uh, uh, story, histories within histories. But basically, Cohn is saying he's out to avenge the father uh, because Roy Cohn had been you know, McCarthyite prosecutor in Washington during the Red Scare. Uh, that, it, it, rang, it, it rings true, but it's not true because the chronology is all wrong. Uh, Morgenthau was already long gone when Roy Cohn comes in, yeah. and he was never called uh, to those hearings anyhow. Um, but uh, what, what Morgenthau really did was work very closely with Bobby Kennedy, whom he had not known as a kid. Bobby, of course, was much younger, and they grew very close. Again, this was, I didn't know this, this was underappreciated history. I was able to track down uh, an interview um, at length, uh, sometimes many times, uh, every, every last living um, uh, aide to Bobby Kennedy during that time when he was the attorney general, you know, the youngest attorney general. Uh, in U.S. history, and his brother, older brother Jack, said, "Yeah, uh, so so he's never practiced. Uh, he's going to get a little bit of practice on the job." Uh, Bobby Kennedy was actually an amazing attorney general. You know, we remember civil rights, um, but what we don't remember was he took on the mob. Yeah. He took on the mob, and yeah. so so there are uh, several chapters about uh, Bobby Kennedy um, being. Um, Bobby Kennedy sitting in Washington and Morgenthau as his field general because where was the mob first and foremost? Right here in New York City. And Morgenthau loved it. He made, um, even though he had met J. Edgar Hoover, again, as a young man, <laughs> Hoover had actually had him fingerprinted. I found the fingerprints um, when he was about 17 years old. Um, they had history. Uh, he was able to essentially co-op, as he would do a time and again and again, uh, the field office of the FBI in Manhattan. And Morgenthau read those reports, used those guys, worked in tandem with the Federal Bureau of Narcotics that his father had, had run, mm -hmm. um, and really took it to the mob in a way that had never never been done before in America. So there, I go through a lot of that in the book. And it's fascinating, you know, again, unknown history. Got it. So, so Bob's U.S. attorney, and then when does he decide, you know what, I really want to be district attorney instead? So we're going to get to what you started with, was why he never became mayor. <laughs> right. And, uh, and he, he said, you know, I grew up in a household where we always talked about Al Smith. And I don't really know where that comes from. I think, uh, as I say in the book, I think it comes from being, being, even though they had money, even though his grandfather had become one of the great real estate barons um, of the 1910s and 20s, even though he had uh, really joined the political class. You know, they call it public service, but it was really political power. Yeah. Uh, he, uh, Henry Morgenthau Sr. would say, 
not joking that he bought the Democratic Party for Woodrow Wilson for 20000 It was probably more like 40000 uh, I found that he was literally bundling cash in books. Uh, uh, this was in memoirs of other, other members of the Wilson cabinet that he would, you know, hand over cash and put it in a book, and then you hand this book to the candidate. Um, so he was a bundler. Um, and uh, all of this time, Bob Morgenthau is thinking about Obviously, Roosevelt and Albany, um, where his father had been throughout those years, thinking about Al Smith. Um, and the whole time in the 1960s that he serves almost 10 years, uh, it's still, I think, the longest serving record as the U.S. attorney. Um, he's thinking about Albany. That was the job he wanted, was governor. Um, he thought Many, many times people wanted him to run for mayor. He didn't want it. And actually, Lou Harris, another guy who I interviewed many, many times, uh, you know, essentially single-handedly created polling and, and political strategies, uh, who worked on not just one but two Morgenthau campaigns. The DA liked to forget the second time he ran. Uh, he ran in 1962 at the behest of Jack Kennedy. Uh, I found an FBI. Uh, who, was, who was the governor then, or who ended up being the governor? You tell me. 62. So that was before Rockefeller, or was Rockefeller it's there? It's Rockefeller. Okay, yeah. yeah. <clears throat> and, uh, and so it was leading, uh, the, the quote I found from the FBI bureau chief in New York to J. Edgar was, this is like leading a lamb to slaughter. And, <laughs> and, and even a good candidate would have been uh, slaughtered. Morgenthau was horrific on the stump. Uh, I was able to interview, you know, the guy that ran advance for him in the press. They said, you know, th which is in the book, just, you know, hysterical but sad stories of... Um, being upstate and JFK showing up and you've got, you know, <clears throat> Mr. Hollywood on stage and the press come and they bring the photographers in and there is the U.S. attorney, Bob Morgenthau, who at his best is the most wooden speaker, um, 20 feet away from the president. And they're trying to get him into the in field the for the... Yeah, yeah exactly, in the shot. In the shot. Yeah. Uh, too, too little, too late. Uh, and in 1970, he runs again... Um, it but he must lasted have, about three weeks. He must have hated actually running for office, no? Um, I think he tried to be, you know, an ideas guy. And there are, um, there are debates, televised debates. There was one televised debate with Rockefeller uh, when he's talking about all the things that people are talking about today. Uh, it never gets old, or it's always old. Crime, education, uh, inequality uh, among classes, as they called it then. Um, and he's really trying to talk about ideas. And so... As he's sort of DA forever, is, is there some point where anyone says this guy's been in power for too long and, and someone tries to take him out? Or is he just sort of kind of just anointed for as long as he wanted? He never thought that. Uh, in fact, he kind of. It, it's a contradiction. He loved running. He loved campaigning. He just didn't huh. want an opponent. Uh, and, you know, I, I know that I like that. Yeah. <laughs> and he loved, you know, uh, he actually got better on the stump. I got to see him in his late 80s and the 90s when he gave speeches. He was actually becoming a really good speaker. He was extemporizing. He was funny. He had an incredible sense of humor. It went over most people's heads. Uh, but he had an absolutely dry timber fire humor that, that literally went over most uh, of his assistants' heads. But those that it, that it did not. Uh, appreciated it and savored it. Um, he loved going to the district clubs. He loved going to the neighborhood associations. Um, it was one of the things that he enjoyed the most. But he really disdained anyone who dared challenge him, uh, whether it be um, Vernon Mason 
um, <clears throat> whether it be Leslie Crocker Snyder, uh, whether it be a local district leader. Uh, and he kept tabs. Uh, he kept tabs. Uh, so um, nine successful campaigns uh, outlasted, I think, five mayors, um, uh, at least nine police commissioners. Yeah, he was DA. Um, one of the first times I went to uh, a benefit dinner uh, with him, and the year that he announced his retirement, there was a benefit dinner every other night. And there was a, you know, uh, all hail Morgenthau this and all hail Morgenthau that. And a lot of these were worthy uh, charities that were using his name to fundraise. And he went along with it uh, uh, avidly. But one time he was introduced as uh, Bob Morgenthau DA for life and possibly after. <laughs> we, and as, we, we might be better off if that had been the case. And as the years went on, uh, as I detail in the book, because I, was, I, was, I was recording it, reporting it contemporaneously, when you had a, a series of infamous, now infamous cases playing out um, in New York and around the world, DSK, the Dominus Strauss-Kahn yep. case, um, I would be getting a phone call in the morning or in the middle of the night saying, you know, uh, he's fucking up. And again and again, this was King Lear in the wild, in the wilderness, his self-appointed heir, yep. Cyrus Vance, yep. Comes in, who had been a quote, quote, quote unquote Morgenthau protege, had spent years in the office before going to Seattle and heading into uh, uh, defense work, criminal defense work. Comes back, the prodigal son, something like the Morgenthau dynasty. His father had been Secretary of State. Yep. It seems like a very good story. Um, I don't remember the vote total. I used to know, but I think it's easier to become uh, uh, that year that, that Vance won. Um, the first time uh, he served three terms yep. and, and more than enough time. It didn't uh, seem like he ever quite loved the job. But. Well, I think that, you know, I think he won uh, it, that that particular campaign was it was easier to win Manhattan D.A. than to win, you know, uh, president of the high school class in North Dakota. Uh, <laughs> maybe that's unfair, but the vote totals were excruciatingly low, yeah. something that Morgenthau did not miss. Uh, he kept very, very close tabs, as did many of the people in the office. You know, you've got. 350, 400 lawyers and staff. I was done. That was partly, in retrospect, my fault. Because <laughs> the message we had for the Bloomberg campaign in 09, and Mike was at the top of the ticket, was, right. we got this, it's over, there's no race, there's nothing to see here. Because in reality, we were actually pretty politically vulnerable. And it was sort of used as sort of sleight of hand to keep anyone from engaging with the Democratic Party and giving them the support they would need, whether it was labor or newspapers or donors or whoever. And I think we might have depressed turnout as a result across the entire uh, across was the that, entire city. Was that the uh, Bill Thompson year? Yeah. Yeah, yeah I'm exactly. sure Mr. Thompson was pleased with that. Oh, he loved it. Um, so Hugo's yeah. giving me the high sense. I'm going to give you a choice of two final questions. So here's the choice. Either tell the Steinbrenner story or... If Alvin, if Morgenthau came back to life and Alvin Bragg asked him for advice, what do you think Morgenthau would say? I'll go with the Bragg. Okay. Um, yeah, uh, Morgenthau famously um, disowned his hair, his heir, yeah. um, Cy Vance, and I think that was uh, somewhat fair, but also somewhat unkind. Um, oh. He didn't want anyone to be DA. Uh, and we talked about this again and again. No one was going to be good enough, right. except maybe Bob Morgenthau in his mid-50s, as he was, when he first uh, was sworn in. Um, but I also asked him, you know, the toughest of the tough questions uh, was, which was, 
you know, what man in the history of American criminal justice put more young men of color behind bars? Really, what man? I mean, he liked to say he had three million prosecutions to his name, which is statistically true, around 300,000 a year, uh, 35 years. But what man in man or woman in you know, American history was, had his name on more prosecutions that, that put young men of color behind bars? And to say that he regretted it uh, is, is, uh, is to put it mildly. It weighed on him. And in his last years, uh, which were about 10 years of writing op-eds, opinion pieces, uh, whether in the Times, Daily News, I mean, he wrote for anyone, the Wall Street Journal, uh, anyone who would take him. He wrote about immigration, mm -hmm. first and foremost, back to his uh, great-grandfather. He wrote about veterans and PTSD and veterans' rights. He had an amazing war. He was uh, almost killed in the Mediterranean and then turned right around and went to the Pacific and took part in uh, the assault on Iwo Jima, and he had seen death and loss and, and, and PTSD, uh, had, had never really spoken about the war uh, until I came along. Um, and he also wrote about mass incarceration. He didn't call it that. He certainly wouldn't have talked about decarceration. He certainly wouldn't talk about closing Rikers. He came out, you'll remember, with Mike Bloomberg and stood be beside Ray Kelly and said, yeah, I'm in favor of stop and frisk when it yep. was not fashionable at all. Um, and yet, I do think he wouldn't, have call, he wouldn't call it uh, progressive prosecution. But in the same way that one of Cy Vance's top lieutenants told me, Cy told us last week, don't you dare call me a progressive prosecutor. <laughs> um, Morgenthau knew politics. He was a political animal. You right. know, obviously, he grew up in it. But I think that much of what Bragg is trying to do not, not uh, the missteps time and again, shooting yourself in every foot possible yeah. uh, and everyone's around you. But the intent of what Bragg is trying to do, I don't think, of course, Morgenthau could have done it, but I think that he would have agreed with much of it. Yeah. Now, many people who were his assistants, you know, will, will scream at me saying, you know, what are you talking about? The boss never would have agreed with that. But in his last years, it did weigh heavily on him that it was simply unfeasible. And if you look at his last, uh, again and again, he one point chaired the sentencing hearing uh, in Albany. He talks about three things. He talks about drug treatment. He talks about um, education. And he talks about money funds for reentry from prisons. You know, uh, his father was famous for the Morgenthau plan. He always said what we need is uh, not to put people behind bars, but we need something like a Marshall Plan in America. And that's really what his greatest critics also said. They brought, you know, the Rockefeller laws. Uh, they, they created um, a, a system of mass incarceration, turning most of upstate into prisons, but they never brought a Marshall Plan for the cities. And I, you know, I think that some of what Bragg is trying to do, and it's a national trend, of course, the pendulum will swing back and forth, but I think that Bob Morgenthau would have agreed with the tendency of it. Interesting. All right, I could ask you, I think I could literally keep going for an hour. I have so many more questions for you, but Hugo's making me stop. Um, sure. So one, how do people follow you, kind of see what you're up to? Uh, I do have a website, andrewmeyer.com, M-E-I-E-R. Okay, and uh, people should definitely buy the book. There's no question about that. Um, all right, Andrew, thank you so much great. for joining us. That was a great interview. Thanks so much, Brad. Thanks. Thanks.